Pantheogen. Elevate the conversation. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. Please support Entheogen by making a donation on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $1. Pledge just $3 or more and get early access to new episodes, plus exclusive patron-only features. Head over to entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again. We are very pleased this week to be joined by Dr. Rosalind Watts, clinical psychologist at Imperial College London. Uh, Roz, thanks for joining us on Entheogen. Thank you for having me. So you've been working with um, Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris, um, who's one of our heroes. We call him a boy wonder. <laughs> so uh, we've been following along his work and, of course, now your work there as well uh, for some time now. And it's uh, just quite impressive, uh, you know, the results you've been getting from uh, mostly, is it um, psilocybin mushroom trials so far that you've been working on? Yes. My work so far has been on the psilocybin for depression study. Um, which has been the main part of the Imperial team's work for the last little while. And we're just so impressed with the level of success you've had. Um, of course, there's no kind of, um, you know, 100% solution, but you've had essentially uh, improvements in, in, you know, almost every individual who's gone through this, um, these, these trials uh, for anxiety mm-hmm. and depression, for example. Um, mm-hmm. And I think many of them, almost half uh, in uh, one of the recent studies, uh, after I think five months, were uh, still reporting improvements in their uh, in their well being. You know, thanks to these, mm. these trials, just you know, one or two sessions with uh, psilocybin uh, mushrooms. Yeah. So it's really impressive. Um, are these phase one uh, studies? Yeah. So this is the the study I think you're referring to is a feasibility study. So that was in um, 20 clinical uh, patients. So it was actually a phase two, um, and we're we're moving to the next stage now because we're planning a randomised control trial with a larger sample. I see. And how does that work? Will that be uh, at other locations as well in the UK? Um, no, that'll be all at Imperial. I see. Yeah. Interesting. And then how, how close does that um, put this medicine to, um, you know, being being legalized or rescheduled? Or I'm not sure what the sort of uh, terms you use there in, uh, in England. Well, we're working quite closely with an organization called Compass. I don't know if you've uh, had any contact with them. And they are um, kind of overseeing uh, the larger project, which is essentially... Uh, thinking carefully about how we can navigate the quite complex systems in place so that we can, I guess it's a bit in the States you have the, I guess is it the FDA, you have all those kind of regulatory processes. We, we have the EMA, the European Medicines Association. And so they have a kind of roadmap of how we can, uh, yeah, work with them and hope that we can see psilocybin available to patients in about five years time. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That is exciting. That is quite is. exciting. Um, yeah. yeah, some of the interesting, um, you know, quotes we read uh, from yourself and others uh, mm. involved just um, how helpful these medicines can be with couples, for example. Mm. Um, and it, I have some personal experience with that. Um, my mm. my first kind of uh, real connection with my now wife uh, mm. over ten years ago was um, on a. Uh, magic mushroom trip, um, self kind of guided, self arranged, mm. and uh, we just had an you know incredible connection, solidified by by the uh, the medicine, uh, psilocybin, 
And mm. uh, it was years later, just a few years ago, that we sort of spontaneously got engaged on a mm. uh, magic mushroom experience. And uh, it, the other thing I noticed is that there, there are couples referred to in, in an article we read, which we'll link in the show notes, um, where they practice this on a regular basis, like monthly, to have these um, psychedelic experiences, specifically with psilocybin mushrooms, to um, you know reinforce the uh, connection they have with each other. And uh, this reminded me of something uh, I, have, uh, I I'm I'm thinking my friend Kevin here has uh, has uh, has done on a somewhat regular basis, and I'm wondering if you can shed any light on that sort of regular check in, Kevin, and, and maybe uh, we can discuss that a little bit. Yeah, that that was one of the things uh, also in reading the articles that uh, jumped out to me, and I think you know uh, obviously it's uh, an application that would come further on down the line. There are more uh, pressing pressing matters like uh, depression, anxiety, but I really think the the uh, couples therapy is just an incredible, uh, just just an incredible development and something where uh, real, you know, real good can be done. And uh, and some of the quotes that we had prepared while going through the articles, it's like I couldn't agree more. It's like uh, it's like get, seeing that person again for the first time and kind of getting back in touch with the origin of your relationship. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the so we did some qualitative analysis with um, the 20 patients in our psilocybin for depression study. Um, and we were looking for the themes about uh, what they said had really changed, what had lasted. And the two themes were connection and acceptance. And I think those are two things that, yeah, for couple relationships are incredibly yeah. important. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, uh, you know, uh, just the, the sort of uh, the, the regular checking. I mean, I, I always I think when I had these experiences at the, the first times, I just kept thinking it would have been great if, you know, my parents or a lot of people's parents had these, you know, right. had to sort of check in every once in a while, whatever. But, uh, mm. but it's definitely, uh, I think, a, a very, very healthy practice, you know, obviously, if it's all uh, done properly. But um, like you said, it's it's the, the connection. It's it's uh, br kind of breaking the the des desensitization and the kind of routine life that you can develop uh, mm. with it, with a with a partner. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for many of the participants in, in our study, um, years and years of depression had taken its toll on their relationships. So. There was one uh, participant who told us that, uh, well, when he when we first met him, he was saying that, you know, it's been a long time since he'd really been able to engage in his family life. Um, and then the day after the, the high dose psilocybin session, he went for dinner with his wife for the first time in seven years. Um, wow. And after that, he was he um, went to see his son um, perform at a kind of competition, helped his kids with the homework. You know, he was just telling us all these little stories of, of the things that he was able to do that he just hadn't done for years and years. Wow. So that was great. Yeah. R Roz, what kind of reactions do you get? For example, I, uh, you know, I saw your Ted talk and I'm wondering, um, what the reaction is when you speak about, uh, your work in, in whether that's different in different circles, whether there's a sort of curiosity, acceptance, or just, uh, you know, or the opposite. Well, it's interesting, actually, I was having a, I was having brunch with my friends today and uh, some of them are, are kind of um, in linked fields. Uh, many of them aren't. And uh, I have to say that when I first started um, uh, working in this project, there was certainly some kind of suspicion. I was kind of surprised about it. But, yeah, I think there is some uh, the, the kind of old attitudes that, um, you know, psychedelics are incredibly dangerous. I think that has right. really um, it's penetrated quite deep. So even people that I 
uh, assumed kind of had a bit more of a realistic approach that you know they're still yeah those those kind of old images of people jumping out of windows and yeah. the, the media hype is really it's it's a real shame it's a real kind of negative legacy that we're really having to kind of work against constantly how do you um, prevent your uh, patients uh, from jumping out of the windows <laughs> well, we don't have any windows. That's ah, okay. <laughs> the the uh, the room that we used is uh, it's a kind of in a, in a kind of research facility, and it's not a particularly nice room. It's there's no windows. It's quite dark, but we've decorated it so that it's really quite beautiful and welcoming and nice. But it's such a shame we don't have a window because it would be so lovely for people to be able to look out onto the trees towards the end of the day when they're starting to feel a bit more together. Um, mm -hmm. but instead we, we can only show them pictures of nature. It's a shame we can't see the real thing. Interesting. Um, if, if you don't mind, I'm very curious kind of how you approached this project. Like, was, was it your work? Um, had you previously done work, uh, with psilocybin or have you previously done work with depression? Like, how did you come to this project, uh, out of curiosity? So um, I, as a clinical psychologist in the National Health Service, you mo a lot of my work was with people suffering from depression. So I was working in what we call a community mental health team. So it's for people with severe and enduring mental health problems. So most of my daily work was with um, was was therapy, talking therapy with people with either kind of long term depression or sometimes anxiety disorders as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I had some familiarity with. Uh, therapeutic approaches to depression and I have to say I was slightly um, <clears throat> well I, I'd come to realize that actually I suppose when you train to be a uh, maybe well certainly when I trained to be a clinical psychologist I did it thinking oh I want to be able to help people and I think I was it's slightly disillusioned I was slightly disillusioned when I realized that actually um, the services are so under-resourced that we were actually weren't able to offer people the help that they needed you know the, the therapy was often mm. very short so we'd see people for you know four or six sessions <clears throat> which is really hard because somebody opens up to you about their life story and then you have to say goodbye again so it's uh I was kind of realizing that I needed to find another way of working that would be a bit more um that could could go a bit deeper yeah and, off, and offer people something more um and it was in that that kind of time where I was starting to think about that, that actually uh, my best friend went off to do an ayahuasca retreat. And I guess at that point I was one of the people that was very kind of like, you know, oh, psychedelics, what are you doing? It's incredibly dangerous. <laughs> I, was, I was that person. Exactly. So when, when she told me one day that she was going to, you know, kind of clean out her bank account to go off to Peru, I was kind of begging her not to go and saying, no, don't do it, don't do it. And then when she came back and I saw her walk through the door and I just – I knew something I was like wow so you know she was it helped her so much and the the, the help the the benefits have lasted for, for so many years that um that was the first step for me knowing that I wanted to work with with those substances wow that's amazing that's really amazing um have you so you mentioned that previously you'd done mostly therapeutic work um, mm -hmm. Have you seen other kind of pharmacological approaches with depression that at least in your experience, uh, contrasts with what you've seen in the promise of psilocybin and, and maybe other uh, psychedelic substances? 
Mm, well, I mean, in the community mental health team, um, prescription of antidepressant drugs was, was you know, it would be very unusual for somebody not to be prescribed antidepressants, so SSRIs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, oh, yeah, I, I mean, I know, I know that for some people really say that they really help them get through a really difficult time. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that there are, you know, many people that, that are really grateful for the, for the, for what SSRIs have given them. But I think what I saw was that they were prescribed probably too commonly, like too frequently, and that they were prescribed for a very long time so that people just became very used to taking them mm. and uh, that maybe it didn't really address the root causes of their difficulties, a bit of a sticking plaster. So whereas psilocybin is the complete opposite. So it's like ripping off the plaster and going right down into what's there at the root and although it can be really challenging for people, like it's not an easy option. It's, you know, really often not an easy option. People had some really challenging times in the study, but it seems to um, provide something very different to antidepressants in that it offers that opportunity for working through things that haven't been worked through before. Yeah. Yeah. When you're saying that before, I was thinking about the kind of difference between treating the symptoms versus the root cause. And, and I yeah. feel... Um, you know, that work like you're doing is incredibly valuable and important to to addressing that and sort of getting out of the, the cycle of, of treating symptomatically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's I mean, the the whole approach is so different because I think with uh, with with giving kind of antidepressants, uh, there's there's not much of a human relationship necessary. I mean, the psychiatrist or doctor will see that person for reviews every once in a while, but mainly to check that they're they're okay and they don't have any kind of untoward physical reactions um, or, or other reactions. But um, I think the the thing I really love about the, uh, working with psilocybin is that the, the relationship with the with the patient is so important and powerful. So yeah it's it's not just giving a pill and saying goodbye it's like you really when you're like so I was a guide in the study as well and when you're you're guiding um you're you're a guide for someone you just really you connect with them in a way that I was never able to do when I worked in other mental health services because there was never time it was always like a bit of a rush you know like here's six sessions or there are your tablets you know see you soon hope you get better whereas with this it's like you know, you spend a whole day with someone when they're in that very open, quite vulnerable state and you, they really learn, they trust, they have to trust you. Otherwise, you wouldn't go ahead and do the the session. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they trust you, you trust them. And it's really profound. And it's something that I think our mental health services, just by sheer, you know, like over, over, like, you know, loads of pressure, loads of people to see, not enough resources, like that human connection is often lost. And people feel a bit like they're caught in a kind of machine, you know, like they're just numbers, you know, like going through a system. Whereas with this, it's like you you really stop and look at each other and connect and say, right, you know, we're here as human beings. Let's let's do this work. And that is like it's there's a therapist that is just about the most amazing thing to be involved in. I, I was going to say, Ross, how, how do you how do you prepare for that? Like the first time you're going to go through an entire experience with someone because i can imagine yeah for you it can get uh, quite tricky at certain points uh, in in terms of how to deal uh, with, with a person uh, particularly in the i would in, in the most powerful phases of the experience mm. well so bill bill i guess you you know bill richards um who's oh, yeah. in the way 
<laughs> the way that you say about yeah Rob Robin is also one of my heroes too he is you know he does amazing amazing work and Bill is another one you know he really is um just uh, an incredible person and he has um done some training for us and helped out a lot in the development of the study and uh I think his advice really kind of um just that you know before going ahead the uh the participant has to have trust in the guide and trust in their own mind and um I think it's it's those two things and knowing that and 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 I have to have that trust too like that trust in uh in the relationship in the setting and also trust trust in the power of the human mind because what we saw over and over and over again was that um people could go to these incredibly you know sometimes incredibly painful difficult places and see things that you know they'd often see the one thing that they said they didn't want to see, you know, like, oh, it'll be okay as long as I don't see that, whatever, and that, you know, that it would come along. And something that they always thought would just be impossible, it's, um, they, were, they were never given more than they could handle, and uh, there, was, there was a kind of beautiful um, design to the sessions often that, that you just, at the end of the day, would think, wow, you know, that was, that was amazing. And you just each time you have trust in in the process in a in a situation like that where someone is confronting something that they specifically you know did not want to see that maybe they have been avoiding and maybe yeah. this is a source of their depression um mm. if you know in that moment when they're confronted with this thing do you find there's some sort of guidance needed or um do you just sort of uh, just continue to provide that safe space and they sort of can get through it on their own um, I think probably, I mean, you know, like it's still, this is something that we're going to continue to learn more about as the next, we go into the next study and, um, you know, guide more sessions. But I guess so far I'd say, um, that as much as possible to kind of just be supportive and be present rather than, uh, rather than directing it comes back to that same thing about just trust in the process that the person is going to go where they need to go and to try to stay out of that process as much as possible. Um, whilst, whilst being very, very much present if they need you. Right. And that presence in the room with them, you know, as you said, is so integral to the experience. Um, Mm. and it just occurs to me, you mentioned like early on that, uh, you know, you had, uh, been a little bit, um, Uh, sort of disenfranchised with the whole practice of, uh, you know, psychotherapy and Mm. requiring these, you know, four or five sessions. And then, you know, and that's basically all you've got time for. And maybe it's a, you know, five hour investment of time in in one hour sessions and with almost no real progress and how discouraging that can be versus, you know, an entire day's investment. And, um, you know, actually, uh, you know, one of the sort of uh, possibly valid concerns about this type of therapy is just how sort of labor intensive it is and setting up this Mm. room and this space and this team of therapists and, uh, you know, and and spending an entire day. And sometimes it's a, it's an inpatient, uh, um, type of, uh, therapy and, uh, you know, it can be certainly very labor intensive and possibly expensive, but then Mm. again, if it works in one session, um, you know, it, it can be overall just so much more effective. So, um, can you speak to that at all? Just how you see this maybe progressing in, in the, in the long term? how this might scale? Yeah. So I guess, um, I, 
I can see it being yeah thinking about the kind of practicalities of how it will actually work there are there are so many people suffering from depression so many people that could benefit and, and other uh, mental health problems that could could benefit from this potentially I mean it, it won't be for everyone but there are many people that it will potentially be helpful for um and yeah thinking about how it can be accessible to to everybody not just the kind of privileged few and obviously there needs to be if, if it's a very expensive treatment it, it will just be the privileged few that can access it so I can see potentially a model where um, I can almost imagine a kind of centre where people would come and they would have a, a kind of one or two um, session kind of experience uh, with, with trained guides and going through the, the, the kind of same protocol that we used in our study. And then they would go on to whatever kind of um, standard talking therapy is offered. So those five sessions that are offered at the moment, um, the, 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 the participants in our study, we, they talked a lot about their previous therapy. And in, in our interviews, we asked them to compare psilocybin and the therapy they had before. And they talked about how um, sometimes they felt very condescended to, you know, people would, the therapist would be telling them to set goals, but they just felt so demotivated. They didn't know what goals to set. And they were trying to please the therapist by coming up with something, but really they just felt like a failure. And, and I think that that kind of quite goal-directed, focused CBT-type therapy, um, for many of them, just just it really didn't work. But I can imagine that after a psilocybin experience at a kind of centre, people could then go on to those um, talking therapies and that they would be so much more effective because, you know, the psilocybin would be a kind of catalyst. It would It would open people up so that those five sessions would be a chance to start thinking about how they can uh, put some of these insights into into action so I, yeah. I I think it could work alongside the conventional models we have to to make it more effective yeah I agree it seems like there's an opportunity for for you know complementary value mm. of different aspects of it um, I've had the opportunity to to drink ayahuasca a few times and in one of the two things that I heard quite often about it um, and about the experience and sort of to to help mitigate expectations and and as I was honestly as I was learning what it really meant to have an intention versus an expectation um, mm. one of the things that I heard often was the real work comes after the ceremony and yeah. that the experience is like you said it, it, a chance to access something but then to have structured guidance around um, how to to focus that um, you know, inspiration or, or education from the experience. It does seem very complimentary that the sort of different pieces of the same puzzle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess from that experience, you probably didn't have much of a structured follow-up kind of program. I don't know whether. No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Not, not from the, the ceremony itself. You know, I was left to have, you know, fortunately for me, friends like Kevin and Joe and, and a few others who um, I can be vulnerable with and, yeah. um, and help integrate those experiences. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like it, the, the ayahuasca experience in and of itself was that experience and it didn't really come with the um, the post uh, therapeutic aspect or that structure to to build yeah. on it. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it's you know integration is so important. I mean, we, in our studies, we haven't been able to offer people as much integration as we would like to you know ideally like to have. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wonder whether there will in future kind of studies we'll find that the amount of integration we offer or that people have actually kind of correlates with the length of outcome. You know, whether people 
people the kind of changes can last because obviously in our study although as you mentioned before many of them well about six of them were um they would they still met the criteria for remission at the six month point but for a large chunk of them so 11 of the 20 they had a kind of two two months of feeling depression free or very very mild depression symptoms and then it came back and I guess I wonder whether if they'd had more um, integration sessions whether that those benefits might have lasted a little bit longer or you know who knows but we can we can look at it in future. Yeah. Roz, I have a general question about um, psilocybin uh, mushrooms and uh, you know psychedelics more broadly. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of well established that psychedelics are you know non-addictive, um, or at least they tend not to be. Uh, and you know you rarely see someone who's sort of addicted to taking psychedelics. Um, they have built-in safeguards against that, like they become less yeah. effective if you take them regularly and things like that. Um, but I have seen a couple of examples, or sort of anecdotally, of uh, people. Um, I mean, for lack of a better word, abusing uh, psychedelics. I've, I've seen one friend uh, uh, with uh, sort of a, like almost an, uh, like an LSD habit, I would say. And I'm not talking about you, Kevin. Mm. Um, yeah, I was <laughs> saying, man, it's not it's not very cool of you to say that right, right. here. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, but but, <laughs> but another um, maybe more relevant one is a, a friend who um, you know I've seen uh, r- repeatedly um, taking taking mushrooms and, and seeming to have some healing experiences and breakthroughs and things and and uh, but then also seeming to get stuck in this in this sort of place where he uh, is almost like leaning on the the uh, the medicine as a crutch it seems and uh, yeah. it, you know and, and sort of. Um, flailing about a bit. Um, and I'm just wondering if, if there's some kind of, um, I don't know, uh, recommendation or advice you may have for someone who may, you know, embark on a course of self therapy with the best of intentions, um, and, and maybe realize some breakthroughs and, and, uh, you know, in treating their own sort of anxiety and depression. Um, but then somehow, you know, get stuck in that post-processing stage, uh, where they don't have that, that, you know, ongoing context of, of a therapeutic uh, practice to process those uh those outcomes and and uh learnings well i guess um that after each experience ideally what what is what comes through what uh, those insights and ideas and feelings um should really be uh kind of integrated and, and you know put into practice before another experience so otherwise you know if you kind of keep going back getting the the insights but you don't actually put them into practice then yeah you're kind of stuck in that that loop so I would say you know just to really find some way of whether it is through I mean there are integration therapists out there I mean obviously they they're usually private you have to pay there are some integration uh circles I know Catherine McLean's running a a kind of psychedelic integration circle in New York I think Mm -hmm. once a month um so finding a group of people or a way of of talking about what's what's been learned and how that might be put into practice in life before going on to another one and yeah. and kind of having that as a bit of a rule that if, if things haven't actually yet been if, if things haven't changed yet then kind of really trying to focus on making that change before you know planning another experience yeah that makes sense uh, and maybe sort of related to that um it's almost paradoxically um 
mushrooms have been used uh, and, and proven to be very effective, um, at least in preliminary studies, in treating addiction. I, I actually personally quit uh, smoking tobacco um, after a, like on a mushroom trip, essentially at the peak oh, of the no. mushroom trip in a right. in a really deep back bend, and I just had a like flash of that's it. I just quit right at this moment. Um, uh, it was a really amazing experience, um, and I've heard a lot of other people, uh, you know, credit mushrooms with helping them uh, break an addiction to alcohol or or uh, or cigarettes. Um, do you yeah. are are you involved in any studies? We've been talking a lot about you know anxiety and depression, but are you involved in any other studies about uh, psilocybin mushrooms? No, but what is interesting is in the in the depression study, there were quite a lot of examples of that kind of thing. So um, so one person uh, stopped eating meat just spontaneously, just suddenly stopped eating meat and uh, recognizing that it was bad for her. I think it had been kind of, I think she'd been quite, felt quite unhealthy before and felt much more healthy when she'd given it up. There was somebody else that um, spontaneously stopped watching porn. He said before it had, it had been quite a habit and um, one that he wasn't very comfortable with and that suddenly afterwards he just didn't want to watch it and couldn't even watch it. And that was the end of that for him. Um, and then, yeah, like alcohol as well, you know, people just not, not wanting to drink afterwards. So yeah, there were quite a few examples of that kind of thing. Wow. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm curious kind of more in the, the short term or with the project that you're working on now, like what are the next steps and what are the goals of the project? Is it to see things through, um, uh, you know, being approved and being put into practice or do you have a more specific short term goal for the project? Um, yeah, well, I suppose, uh, so as it's a, you know, at Imperial, there's a very strong neuroscience component. Um, the next study will focus on looking at brain mechanisms. So I think that will be, yeah, just trying to understand a bit more about, about how psilocybin works in the brain and how, um, what placebo looks like in the brain and, um, yeah. But also like a, a larger study, because obviously uh, 20 patients is a very small sample. So mm -hmm. and there were some other things like um, the patients in our last day, many of them were self-referrals. So you would expect a bit of a um, a bias there. So right. this time our patients are going to mostly come from a clinical referrals. So, yeah, there will often be people that have never even dreamt of taking a psychedelic before. And yeah. I think that that'll that'll be a good a good thing to look at. Gotcha. So con, kind of continuing to to gather data, right? Like yeah, uh, gather yeah. information and, and help yeah. inform how this goes. And we've we've talked so many times on the show before uh, about how you know we kind of missed about half a century's opportunity to collect information <laughs> in how yeah. everything was uh, you know in in the '60s come come down on so harshly. And it's it's really inspiring and exciting to to see this research being done now and to to begin to start collecting meaningful information and and uh, really learning from it and you know having folks like you and and Dr. Carhart Harris and Professor Nutt and and so many other you know heroes of ours and so I don't know it, it's been a it's been a real honor to to get a chance to talk with you today and to learn more about the work that you're doing and and to share our appreciation for everything that you are doing so thank you so much. Oh, thank you too. Thanks very much, Roz. And uh, is there anything you would ask of our listeners uh, if they are interested in supporting this kind of research? You know, anything from writing letters to uh, the representatives, or uh, perhaps donating money, or, or or things like that. 
Well, interestingly, uh, since you mentioned money, um, one of the things that I think that we often don't really we talk about is that um, the research uh, itself, like that there is very little funding actually available. So, um, yeah, we donations would always be appreciated, but I'm not exactly sure about how we're going to set that up. I mean, we have talked at certain points about doing another crowdfunding campaign, um, but I, I don't know whether or not we will. But yeah, I mean, uh, brain scans are very expensive. So at the moment, we're in a situation of kind of like, uh, yeah, like working out which which ones we really need to do and budgeting. So, yeah, I mean, I guess we're going to set up a new website for the Imperial Psychedelic Research Group. So look out for that. And when that's there, if we do have any kind of um, crowdfunding ca- campaigns, then, yeah, it would be great if people could support it. Excellent. And if anyone has a uh, fMRI machine collecting dust yeah. in the basement, uh, you know. Send over. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks again to Dr. Rosalind Watts of uh, Imperial College London. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Ross. That was Entheogen. Elevate the conversation. Please support Entheogen by making a donation on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $1. Pledge just $3 or more and get early access to new episodes, plus exclusive patron-only features. Head over to entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again.